Hello listeners and welcome to the Afriwetu podcast where we look to celebrate African history, people and culture by telling our story. As always, our hope is that it fills you with enough curiosity to go and do your own deeper research. Karibuni to any new listeners to the Afriwetu world. We invite you to check out previous Afriwetu episodes which can be found on this podcast platform. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we're headed to the west of our continent to meet the amazing Mali Empire. A shout out to my West Africans out there. Afriwetu is back on your shores. I also want to say I apologize profusely in advance for the mispronunciation of words that will definitely happen. Before we begin, just very quickly, please remember to visit us on our socials. Our handle is at Afriwetu across all the platforms. And please tell your friends and family about us. Anyway, for now, just sit back and enjoy the journey. So, one can't look at African civilizations and not have one of the most iconic empires, the Mali Empire, on the list. A civilization that spanned over a period of roughly 370 years, which is basically close to four, four centuries. From the early 13th century, circa AD 1230s, to its demise in the mid-17th century. One of the best things is how much can be derived from the rich oral traditions of one of my favorite people, Afriwatu, you, you guys know this, the griot. Or in the Mande language, which is what was spoken in the Mali Empire, and I'm so sure I'll butcher this, the jelu, which is spelled J-E-L-I-W. Honestly, I'm a proper fan for like true and for real. We shall hear more about them later on in this episode. Originally, the Mali civilization was a federation of the Mandinka people. And the word Mandinka, I've read, stems from Mandenka, meaning people of the Manden. They are part of the Mande group of people that includes the Bama, the Senufo, and the Dogon. The Mande constituted a large portion of the Mali Empire inhabitants. In fact, the empire is sometimes referred to as the Manding Empire. And these peoples can be found today across all of West Africa. Another term, because we're now in the lecture mode, another term that you should also know when looking at this particular region is Sudanic people's empires. And no, it's not about modern day South Sudan or Sudan. This is a term that was adopted from the Arabic translation where they called the entire area, which is now sort of like the Sahara area all the way across to Cairo, um, Bildad al-Sudan, which means the land of the blacks. And anyway, if you read many historic texts, they refer to Sudanic empires in the Sahara region, including Ghana, Songhai, and today's topic, Mali. Now, saying that the empire 
which spanned a large area, just seems like very inadequate. Because guys, it was massive. Like for real, massive. And as usual, I will ask you, please take out a map as I tell you this next bit. It's also possibly, while you're getting out your map, possibly a good time to mention that obviously the Mali Empire did not just refer to the modern-day country of Mali. So this empire at its height, between the 13th and 14th century, spanned across, listen to this, modern-day Mali, Niger, Senegal, parts of southern and western Mauritania, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, northern Burkina Faso, Ivory Coast, Ghana, and the Gambia. So I don't even know if you can picture how big that is, but you can if you look at the map. It was massive. It was actually one of the largest in the world. When it comes to the origin story, every African civilization always has an interesting blend of origin stories, some fact, some myth, but the best are always a mix of the two. Afriwet would love to hear from our African fam from this region, their versions. Please hit us up on our socials. As usual, I picked what was a common thread from various sources, which were all heavily influenced by the poem called Sundiata Keita, or the epic of Sundiata Keita. So, where do we begin? We'll begin at the Ghana Empire. And yes, it is on our Afriwetu list of civilizations, I promise you. So the Ghana, or the Wagudu Empire, was in a state of decline, having been active from the 6th to the 13th century. Again, this is why it's on the Afriwetu list of civilizations. It used to be a mighty empire and was one of the key political powers in West Africa. It had strong links with the Mandinka kingdoms that existed on the fringes, influencing their mandate traditions, history, and culture. Quick note, Ghana Empire obviously did not just refer to modern-day Ghana. Our Mandinka kingdoms on the fringes were not a united front, and they were then absorbed into Sumanguru Kante's Soso Empire as he went about conquering kingdoms in the wake of the Ghana Empire's decline. This was not a great period for the Mandinka kingdoms, and then they realized that a united front was probably their best bet. So they went and sought out Sundiata Keita to lead their rebellion against the Soso Empire. This is a good move because in AD 1230s, they won the war, defeated, and then annexed the Soso lands, and thus began the start of the Mali imperial era, which was born with Sundiata Keita, the hero forefounder, at its helm. We shall hear more about him in part two, so please remember to tune in. Now, if you take a look at the society, as if with everyone, there were different classes within the empire, from the nobles and ruling elite, to the warriors and blacksmiths, to the slaves. We also find your religious leaders, your traders, your merchants, your farmers, and your artisans. And actually, till today, Malian art is amongst the best in the world. For Afriwetu, the most fascinating were obviously the Jelu. 
otherwise known as the griots across Western Africa. A very quick random aside because we're in society. The mansas were actually said to have sole access to certain goods that were considered of great value and they would bequeath these as they saw fit, which would then elevate a person or their family's social status. And they would use this privilege to gain loyalty from vassal kingdoms, rulers, the nobility, and also sometimes the military. Anyway, so back to society. Let's look at a few of the classes in just a little bit more detail. And unusually, I want us to start with those who were at the lowest rung, the slaves. There were different ways as to how someone became enslaved. For example, you had those who were criminals. You had those who were prisoners of war. Some who were born into it. And others who were actually sold into service by their families. Many of them were made to work the mines and mining iron ore to support the weapon and tools manufacturing industry, which is an integral part to the growth of the empire. Life in servitude with the Mande was not as we know it from the transatlantic Africans who was forcibly taken to the Americas. There were a few key differences, such as the fact that they were able to gain their independence and even gain high-ranking positions in the political sphere as well as in the military. They would have been attached to a family and adopted that name and then be absorbed and have status in Malian society. Actually, the sky was the limit because we have an example of a slave who became a Mansa, Mansa meaning emperor, ruler, king in Mande. His name was Sakura. The other group in society that I wanted to look at were the blacksmiths. Why, I hear you ask? Well, the prestige that came from being linked to the blacksmiths can be seen in later years as the ruling family dynasty, the Caters, and other nobles would actually claim a kinship. So take, for example, the legend Fakoli, who was an influential and revered man in the empire. His association with them added more significance and oomph to his story, and a little bit more about him later. The blacksmith clans had great influence and control within the community. Ironworking was one of the long-held traditions of the Mande, and archaeological finds in Niani showed that as far back as the 6th century AD, there was iron mining and production. P.S. This is not the only area in Africa with advanced metallurgy, as we see it further south in sub-Saharan Africa. Please check out Afriwetu podcasts episodes. Then we come to the religious leaders. Because as in any society, religious beliefs played an important role. The introduction of Islam to manding society was in the form of integrating and then packaged as an African religion so as not to seem foreign. And considering that the indigenous beliefs were strongly held, this immersion of Islam into them really helped in its spread. Those who traveled to Mecca came back with stories of Muhammad, his followers, and the tales of the different civilizations that they saw. Stories that were easy to absorb into manding traditions and cultures, as well as link up to their own legends. And although Islam never fully replaced the traditional beliefs and practices, its importance cannot be overlooked, especially amongst the nobility. We see this in the epic of Sundiata, where it is claimed 
that he's a direct descendant of one of Muhammad's original followers, Bilal ibn Hamama, a freed African slave in the Arab lands who rose to prominence due to his heroic deeds and faith. And then, any self-respecting person who's interested in West African history and culture will know of the griot, or here, as we shall call them, the jelu. The original word griot has a few theories behind it, including that it is derived from other African cultures such as Wolof as Jewel and Soninke as Jawal. As we're in the Mali Empire, I shall use the term I used earlier, which is a jelu, which is plural, jeli for singular and jelimuso for a woman. Being a jeli is usually a hereditary practice with the title passing from one generation to the next. They are trained from birth and are skilled as storytellers, singers, lyricists and musicians. They tell the stories of their people using these skills accompanied by their special instruments, the best known being the kora, which is similar to a lute, but they also use the ngoni, the nko, sometimes called a goje, the khalam or the balafon. I'm using present tense as we still find them to this day. Jelus as ones who celebrate and commemorate warriors and legends through special songs. And indeed, it is one of their more important roles, recording history of their civilization and telling the epic stories of the Mansas and other significant people, including their backgrounds, family, and genealogy. However, for those who don't already know, they are also entrusted with keeping a record of all the key life events like births, deaths, and marriages of their communities, so the everyday people. The Jelu are an important part of Malian society, and it is a privilege and honor to be one, having responsibility that carries on their community's memories. It's really nothing to be sniffed at or taken lightly. We will keep bumping into them on this journey with this civilization and many others to be sure. So the next part I want to talk about is the politics in terms of succession. And actually the best way to term it is messy succession politics. In telling the stories of any civilizations or community, one will always find drama wherever you are in the world. And the same thing is that it is even more juicy when it is a ruling class, right? And Mali truly does not disappoint. Their mode of succession was messy, 
Yeah, and it was just not clear cut in any way, shape or form, which is ironic considering how well organized administratively the empire was run. So just to give you a, an idea of how unclear this succession politics was, just listen to this, covering just a short period between like AD 1255 to AD 1360. After Sundiata's death in AD 1255, he was succeeded by his son, Mansa Wali who had a successful reign and was one of the more powerful rulers of Mali. Upon the end of his rule, he was succeeded by his brother, see, not his son, Mansa Wati, who on his end was succeeded by the next brother, Khalifa. Khalifa was not a great Mansa and in fact has been described as a cruel and vengeful despot of a ruler. There were tales of how he would kill people just for the hell of it. And to make it more of a blood sport, he would use a bow and arrow. I mean, he was just really a bit evil. Anyway, so he was gotten rid of. And then he was succeeded by Abu Bakr, his nephew, taking over. Now, in the case of Abu Bakr, he claimed the throne using the fact that his mother was Sundiata's sister. And manding tradition allowed for both matrilineal and patrilineal claims to a title. So, if you have kept track, you'll see the complexity. We went from father to son to brother to brother to nephew. So yes, this was something that caused problems and ate away at the empire in later years. Then, as if not enough, between 1360 and 1390 comes what we would call a somewhat fraught period, if you will, in the ruling class. There were a host of problematic rulers. It started with... The usurper Sakura, who I told you about earlier, he's the one who cut short Abu Bakr's rule. Sakura was not from the royal line. He wasn't even nobility. He was the former slave who had worked his way up in the military and therefore through Abu Bakr with the backing of the military. His reign was not smooth. And in fact, he was assassinated whilst on his way back from his pilgrimage to Mecca. They didn't even let him get back home. He was said to have been killed in Tajura by the Afar people. Tajura is in modern-day Djibouti. So really far, far, far away from home. Sakura was then replaced by a mansa called Abu Bakr Keita II, I believe. A return to the royal line as he was Sundiata's grandson, the son of Mansa Wali, who had succeeded his father in 1255. I hope you're all keeping up. Now, his demise is still a mystery to this date. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot that is said about him out there. The key thing was it was said that he wanted to discover what was across the oceans. And off he went on an expedition across the Atlantic towards the Americas and was never again seen in his homeland. It was after that, that in AD 1312, another Keita came to power. One of the most famous men in Africa and the world, Mansa Musa. We shall hear more about him in part two of this empire. I will stop there when it comes to the succession politics because I've already lost track of where we are, but it gives you a taste of the succession politics, right? And these are just the highlights. So, how was this place governed with all of this madness going on? 
to keeping it all in mind, it was still a very well-efficiently run empire with sophisticated systems in place. The structure was one that worked for well for such a vast empire with you know, incorporating the complex political and societal terrain. The Mansa was a powerful political figure, but they also had religious superiority with claims of having a direct link to the land and to the ancestors as well as the spirits therein. A few levels down, we find a well-oiled administrative structure run by nobles and officers who formed an assembly. The assembly would then advise the Mansa on all political and governance matters, and they did this with a strong military backing. I mean, to be honest, an empire this big had to have a strong military presence. This military were deployed across the cities to keep everything in check. But even with this strong central rule, the empire did allow a number of kingdoms within its borders a sense of independence, where they retained their own local politics, rule of law, culture and societal norms to a certain extent. And this actually made it easier for them as well to accept Mali imperial rule. So I just wanted to go back to something very quickly, which is the role of women, especially when it came to governance. The system wasn't restricted to one that was patrilineal. You could find that those from the women's side could and did inherit titles, including that of Mansa, such as Abu Bakr. You also see this with Bilal because the name Ibn Hamama, as we said before, was his mother's name. And the naming convention is even seen with Sundiata, whose name is broken down to Solgon, his mother's name, Diata. The same can also be said of Mansa Musa, that his name also infers it to a matrilineal line because he's sometimes referred to as Kanuku Musa, which loosely translated meant Musa's son of Kanuku, his mother. This practice is said to hark back to a time when people would place importance on identifying with the maternal line, a practice linked to the Berber customs. Outside of succession, the Kasa, meaning queen in Manding, also held their own in terms of governance of the empire. One of the key things they did was collecting tribute. In fact, it was said that both Mansa Musa and Mansa Suleiman's wives did just that. The Kasas would also host royal dignitaries from foreign lands and no, not to serve drinks and look pretty, like they would hold actual political meetings, so just so that we're clear. So in terms of political structure, We've already understood that the masses were the center of government and the court, but they did place a good deal of trust in their advisors. So let's just have a quick peek, shall we? Shh, we're about to enter the royal courts. Our guide tells us that today there's some foreign dignitaries who've arrived and are being led to meet the Kasa, the Mansa's first official wife. We catch a glimpse of her. She's a real African beauty. Dark skin. She looks like she's just stepped out of a glossy magazine. Covered in beautiful flowing dress, surrounded by her servants. She passes us and we drop our gaze because she is, after all, royalty. As we walk through the palace, we see this gold and silver arches all over, glinting and shining under the Saharan sun. Our guide swiftly leads us to the courtyard inside the palace. We hear the sounds of debate, a group of men arguing. It's about the empire's expansion plans. 
The Fararia, which is a military commander, is demanding that the master of the treasury and finance minister grant him the means to buy weapons and horses for his armies. No, 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 says the finance minister. Look here, we can come to an agreement. It is not a must to fight every single time, my brother. If I were you, I'd be more concerned about how you feed your armies. Speak to the master of granaries here. Send forth food to all the corners of the empire. That we will pay for happily. I mean, surely. Be wise. The Farayeh is not impressed. You politicians, all you want to do is talk, talk, talk. I will remind you that all the gold and ivory you have made your wealth from is because of our conquests. My armies have enabled you to afford this your lifestyle. We took the kingdoms by force, making us this great trading empire as you have sat here discussing things. Ah, away with you. To be honest, we might as well head out because clearly these arguments will not end anytime soon. No will they end any time these centuries because we know that coming from where we come from. Also, to be fair, at the end, the Mansa has a final say after hearing all the arguments. As we walk away, our guide breaks down a few more facts about the political system. Now, this empire is big, and because of that, we have a few different ways in which the territories are managed. The three that I know of are those kingdoms who are part of the empire and allowed to keep their autonomy. I come from one of them, he proudly tells us. Those ruled by Amansa's proxy, and they also still have a little bit of flexibility. And then you have those under the direct control of the Mansa through his representative. Usually, those are the kingdoms that need a strong hand because they can be a bit rebellious or they're actually just strategic in where they are. So you know you have to control the wealth and protect your borders. Suddenly, the palace is a hive of activity. We turn around and see hundreds of servants running forth, clearing the area. We hear trumpets and singers heralding the entrance of the Mansa. There's a huge procession of the cavalry and soldiers carrying their bows, arrows, swords, lances. A show of force, for sure. We hear loud shouts. And then they stop in perfect formation. And in the midst of all of them, out comes the Mansa. And in a flash, we're back to our time. Now, as we get to the last section of part one, I just wanted to highlight two significant men, Sumungaru and Fakoli, who, although were never Mansas, played an important role in the beginning of this empire. Sumanguru, who we briefly met earlier, was a warrior ruler of the Kanyanga kingdom. He was later to conquer the surrounding kingdoms in the 13th century, establishing and ruling over the Soso Empire. He came into prominence as the empire of Ghana was in decline and captured its capital city, Kumbi, in AD 1203 with an aim to leverage on its strategic location for the trans-Saharan trade. 
At the time of his conquests, he was able to take advantage of the instability of the region because as with the fall of a great empire comes a huge vacuum and jostling for regional dominance. He used this period and amongst others, conquered the Mandinka kingdoms. See what I did there? I found the link. It was seamless, no? He's said to have been a ruthless man and was really despised by the Mandinka people. So much so that, as we know, they went and they called Sundiata Keita, who at that point was not even in the area, to come and lead them into battle as a unified force. Obviously, we know this worked and he was defeated. So in a way, had Sumanguru not come to power and been who he was, Sundiata would never have been called on and then founded the empire as we know of it today. The second significant person I wanted to mention was Fakoli. He was the son of Sumunguru's sister. And his father was actually said to be a Mansa in his own right, Mansa Yerelenko. He also served in his uncle Sumungaru's army as a chief general. So remember we also saw that Fakoli is closely associated with the blacksmith clans of old as one of the patriarchs. In addition, he's also claimed by a number of peoples as part of their own founding stories, such as the Koroma, the Danjo, and from nations spreading from the Senegambia, Liberia, and Guinea. He was well known for his fierceness and brilliance in battle, a hero who was full of bravery, making him a formidable general. His feats were recorded by the Jelu, and the historians of his day, and was on par with Sundiata, and in fact had his own praise songs, as well as having prominence in the Sundiata Keita epic. He was given many praise names, including being called, wait for it, big-headed and big-mouthed, which trust me were good things, as in Mandate tradition, being big-mouthed, for example, referred to one who is gifted with speaking powerful truths and with great honor as well as being convincing and gaining people's trust and loyalty. He was described as being short and stocky with big hands and feet. And in fact, it was claimed he used to say that most of his height was underground. So there's no short man syndrome here. His presence played a huge part in turning the tables and giving Sundiata a boost in the war effort. How, I hear you ask? Well, there are a number of versions to this story. The one Afriwetu settled on, mainly because it was a good story, is this one. So what had happened was, he was loyal to his uncle, Sumanguru, until his wife, Kelea, was captured and taken by this uncle. She was said to be a great sorceress and the best cook in the whole empire. And his uncle coveted her. I mean, to be fair, we already heard that he was not the best human. So this shouldn't be a surprise. Anyway, this totally ticked off Fakoli, who apparently said, and my people, please don't quote me. This is an imagined conversation found during my research and I liked it. So I'm just going to say it. Since you are not ashamed to commit incest by taking my wife, I am freed from all my ties with you from this day forward. Henceforth, I shall be on the side of your enemies. I shall combine insurgents mandingos with my own troops and wage war against you. And off he went, joining Sundiata's war effort and tipping the balance in his new allies' favor. 
So I think that was a good time as ever to finish part one. <laughs> but before I sign off, let's have a quick look at what's coming up in part two and then we shall close. So in the next episode, we shall have a look at the expansion of this empire, meet some famous mansas, check out the trade, visit Timbuktu, and then find out what the heck happened. So as we bring it home, is your head spinning? Because mine is. I mean, there is a lot to unpack, right? So even trying to think of a nice bow to tie this up before part two is genuinely not possible. I do really, really apologize again for the mispronunciation of words that definitely happened. I'm sure you heard it. But here's the thing. This civilization lasted close to four hundred years so obviously there's so much more and this is where afriwetu or i have to say please go and do your own say it with me deeper research and until next time mubarikiwe <laughs>